Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together, especially these days, the letter of Paul to the Romans. It's a good day. It's a good day. Megan, I agree with you. I, you know, there are not a lot of songs that I can listen to every day and not grow tired of. Even songs that I've written and recorded. <laughs> Other songs maybe by my son. Uh, but that one, uh, I don't get tired of it because it's a great message. And it's a great song. And I'm biased because it's my son. Anyway, good morning, everybody. Glad you're with us. Hey, Lewis. Uh, good morning, David Bickert fan. Hey, Kismet Queen. Good to have you with us. Uh, Ken, Edgar, good to have you. All right. So uh, we are going to wrap up this uh, study of really Romans 1 through 326. And we've spent several days now really focusing on 321 to 26 because there's so much packed in there. And it's the culmination of everything Paul has been building toward since the opening verses. So we've taken our time to unpack it, taken our time to uh, look at the Old Testament references and so on. Today, we're going to wrap it up. And I'm going to give you here in a minute uh, kind of a, a woodenly literal translation and walk through that and uh, and see if that helps us understand it. All right. So uh, as is my custom, I want to make sure we understand the context. By the way, I hope you are learning that this is the way to study the scripture. You've got to read it and reread it and re-re-re-read it and go slowly and look at what is actually there and be on high alert for your assumptions, even assumptions from other scripture, right? Because they so easily cloud our minds as we're looking at this text. So uh, I'm trying to model that for you as well as teach you what's here. All right, so back to chapter one verses 16 and 17. This is where he started this stretch. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. I'm not ashamed of it. Even though the Jews beat me up, throw me to jail, they accuse me of all kinds of things, they lie about me, they hold me as a traitor, etc. Even though the Jews treat me this way, I'm still not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you Romans who are receiving this, do you believe? Then that belief in the gospel, that is God's power for salvation for you. Well, what do we need to be saved from, Paul? Stay tuned. <laughs> it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Wait, the Jews need to be saved? Huh. And also the Greek. Well, of course the Greeks need to be saved. They're a bunch of pagans. But the Jews need to be saved? And the way the Jews are going to be saved is through the gospel? Well, why is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first? Well, for in it, in the gospel, 
God's righteousness is revealed. Now, at the very beginning, when we looked at this, I told you this uh, righteousness of God could be taken one of two ways. The reformers took it as imputation, the righteousness from God. Luther said he found the gospel because he read Augustine's notes on this passage and realized this was not God's inherent righteousness by which he judges wickedness, but it is the gift of righteousness given to the believer. As you probably know by now, I think Augustine and Luther were mistaken. I believe God's righteousness here in early Romans is God's righteous judgment on sin or sinners, the sin of sinners. Because that's the whole context. What do we need to be saved from? What do the Jews need to be saved from? What do Greeks need to be saved from? God's righteousness. And I, I want to clarify one other thing because of a comment that was made in one of the videos. When we think about God's righteousness, uh, don't think attributes of God. We, we so often, we've been told about God's attributes, like almost like he's the sum of all these theoretical concepts that, that man write about. And have you ever noticed that there is no apostle, no prophet, no one like Moses who unpacks God's attributes. Nobody does a, a whole letter. Paul didn't write a whole letter on God's attributes. That's not the point. God's righteousness is not some theoretical abstract concept. It, it, it's God doing the right thing. That's what it means for God to be righteous. He does what is right. And so his righteousness in this context is to punish the sin of sinners. And that is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness as it is written, but the just shall live by faithfulness. And if you're new to us, you got to go back and watch all the other ones to understand why I am interpreting and translating faith this way, faithfulness. We make a distinction between faith and faithfulness that the scripture just does not make. The reformers made a distinction between faith and faithfulness that the scripture just does not make. Why? For the wrath of God is revealed. So the righteousness of God is revealed. The rightness, the right action of God is revealed in the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, people who do bad or wrong things, sin. Right? That's what, that's what righteousness is, doing the right thing. All right. So then he goes on and shows that the Gentiles were unrighteous and the Jews were unrighteous. And by the way, I'm previewing all this to lead up to my woodenly literal translation. That's what we're doing here. So he, he has to go through and show the Gentiles and the Jews equally are in need of salvation. And wrapping up in chapter 3, verse 19, about the law, we know the law says, or it speaks to those who are in the law, literally, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. You see how the whole context is judgment. 
All the world is guilty before God. And the stress has been on the Jews because that took the, the most work is to convince the Jews that they too were under God's judgment for their sin. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I'm going to uh, set the table for where we're going, in, where Paul's going in Romans. This word justification means to be declared right. So you're standing before the judge and your sins, your, I'm sorry, your actions are being judged by the judge. And if your actions are against God's law, you're going to be declared guilty. If your actions conform to God's law, you're going to be declared righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Okay? So he says here, no flesh will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Now here is what the reformers did with this. They created this doctrine we call sola fide, where they make the emphasis we are not justified by works. Can you find anywhere in the New Testament where justification by works is not in the context of justification by works of the law? I don't think you can. And I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong. The works that Paul is always concerned about when he says justified by faith as opposed to works is works of the law. It is for the Jew. Nobody thought a Gentile was right before God because of works. It's always in the context of the Jew. Works are works of the law. Show me somewhere in the New Testament where Works are not works of the law in its proper context when talking about justification. That's going to be important as we go on. We need to keep things in their context. By the works of the law of Moses, no flesh, no Jew, no circumcised Jew will be declared righteous. Why? For through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was not going to declare any Jew righteous, no flesh, no circumcised one righteous, circumcision of the flesh. I'm also laying the ground for, groundwork for where we're going in chapter 7. Because through the law of Moses comes knowledge of sin because they all broke it. All right. So with that, uh, let me get to my woodenly literal translation of the next section walk through it with you and i realize it's small i hope you can see it uh if if you can't i there's no easy way to get it all up there and uh and make it bigger um so you'll have to squint or enlarge your video later at, watch the recording or whatever all right so the jews are declared guilty they're now aware of their sin because of the law. God's righteousness is being made known, but now without law. So the law condemned the Jews, but now without law, God's righteousness 
has been brought to light. And then he, he adds this clarifying phrase, his righteousness, that which is testified to by the law and the prophets has been brought to light. It has been revealed. So remember back in 116, uh, no, Edgar, I did not just copy and paste your paper. I don't think you quite talked about this. Um, Oh, I see a note, Kent here, 1718, could God's righteousness be revealed and God's wrath revealed be parallel statements? Uh, parallel or maybe clarifying God's righteousness in revealing wrath. Right, so I, God's right, God doing the right thing doesn't always equal God showing his wrath. God does the right thing when he justifies um, the righteous, if, if there are any. <laughs> uh, earlier in, in, uh, in chapter 3, Paul quotes David saying, Lord, you are justified when you condemn sin. You are... Uh, no, I'm confusing. Get ahead of myself. Anyway, uh, I don't think they're parallel, but explanatory maybe. All right, so, sorry. I My mind was moving faster than my mouth there. So, Without law, God's righteousness, God doing the right thing, and in the context, judging the sin of sinners, has been brought to light. Now, it's without the law, but it was testified to by the law and the prophets. But God's righteousness by means of the faithfulness of Jesus, Messiah. So now we're not talking about God's righteousness in condemning the Jews through the law, we're talking about God's righteousness being made known or brought to light by means of the faithfulness of Jesus, Messiah. And this is to all, and then he qualifies that, those who believe. So Jesus is faithful to something, and that faithfulness of Jesus is the means that reveals God's righteousness. And this is to all those who believe. For there's no distinction for all sinned and lack the glory of God. Right? That's the point he made all through chapters 1, 2, and 3. All Jews and Gentiles sinned. They lack the glory of God. But those who believe are those who are justified freely by his grace. Remember, justification is declaring righteous. The judge declaring, rendering the verdict, this person is righteous. The faithfulness of Jesus is the means by which God can the judge can rightly or freely declare the believer righteous. By means of the redemption, which is by Messiah Jesus. I said I was going to spend more time in the Old Testament today, but we're already going to run out of time, so I'm going to skip all that. Just read the Old Testament. It testifies again and again <laughs> of, of all this coming. The redemption which is by Messiah. So Jesus, through his faithfulness, redeemed the believer. Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, whom God set forth a propitiation. Yesterday we saw that, the two goats. 
on the day of propitiation, the day of atonement, the sin offering and the scapegoat. But those animals and the death of the sin offering were the way God showed his righteous wrath in the old covenant. But now God has set forth Jesus as a propitiation by means of faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, by his blood. So I think someone asked the question, um, what is the faithfulness of Jesus? It's his faithfulness to go to the cross, his blood. Just like the blood of the sin offering, the goat that we looked at yesterday in the Day of Atonement foreshadowed, Jesus going to the cross and, and being faithful all the way to the end to die on the cross, his blood is how he is the propitiation for proof of God's righteousness. It's his in the Greek here, but it's referring to God for proof of his righteousness on account of the overlooking of the sins which happened previously by the forbearance of God. And I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but how can God be right, do the right thing and simply pass over all the sins of previous generations. Is it right for God to take the death of an animal or even a bunch of animals in place of a human? God overlooked the previous sins. He was forbearing but now setting forth Jesus as a propitiation, Jesus' faithfulness, his blood is proof of God's righteousness, the proof of his righteousness now in Paul's day, in the season, in Paul's season, for which him, God, to be right and him who declares righteousness from the faithfulness of Jesus. Now I put these uh, words in all caps. Oh, I'm on the wrong one. I apologize. I put these in all caps, uh, not because they're marked that way in the Greek, but he's stressing these two things. The faithfulness of Jesus is what allows God to be right and him who declares righteous. You see that? So the believer believes the good news that Jesus died and rose again. He'll flesh that out later on. Right? We confess and believe that Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. That's chapter 10. We believe the gospel. We believe that good news. Well, what happened in the death of Jesus that brings salvation? It's the means by which God can be right in judging the sin of the sinner. Just like on the Day of Atonement we looked at yesterday, when the priest put his hands on the goat, one goat was 
killed. The other goat was the scapegoat and ran out. The sins of the people taken away. God rightly judges Jesus because he's the both goats. As I said, every sin is punished. I said this yesterday. Every sin is punished. If you are a believer, then God punishes Jesus for your sin. And because Jesus, as Ken said, he just because Jesus bore your sin on the cross, that sin is taken away from you. So when you stand before the judge, your sin has been taken away. Well, what is the judge going to declare about you if you don't have any sin on your account? He's going to declare you righteous. The faithfulness of Jesus to shed his blood, to go to the cross, is the means by which the judge can be righteous in condemning sin and sinners and declare you, the sinner, righteous. That's the gospel. That's why it's the power of God for salvation. It's how the right actions of God are revealed, even though you and I and everyone else, including all the Jews, are sinners. How can God be righteous and declare you righteous? Only because of the cross. Questions, comments about that? I know it's a lot of repetition from the last couple days, but we got to see this. We got to get this. This is the gospel. And it's the only way for any sinner to be declared righteous before a righteous judge. It's the gospel. Yes, Ken's exactly right. It's only for those who believe. And it's for all who believe. So we preach Christ and him crucified and call sinners to the only place they can stand before a just judge and be declared righteous. Any other questions? Uh, Alfred says, justified not by works. Can it be applied to both Jew and Gentile? Um, trying to think. I remember what I was talking about there. Trying to think of exactly what you may mean by that question. Feel free to follow up here. Um, I don't think it's a question in the New Testament. I don't think it ever comes up. I don't think... I, I don't think they even had to address the issue of whether a Gentile would be justified by their own actions. Because the mindset of everyone was, uh, in the New Testament, right, it's, it's, a, it, it's a Jewish background. Of course the Gentiles are sinners. Of course the Gentiles are guilty before God. That's, that's not the point. Uh, that's not the need. Um, so whenever the New Testament talks about being justified by works, the works 
are always works of the law. Now there's one exception, but it actually makes my point. I'm gonna hold off until we get there. Uh, some of you may, may figure it out. There's one exception, but it's, it's, it's not even Gentiles that, that we're talking about there. Anyway, my point in saying this is, when we come at scripture from a systematic theology <clears throat> perspective, even reformed theology, we take a statement like this one, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And we wanna make this <clears throat> by works, no flesh will be justified, which is true in and of itself, but that's not the point. The works that Paul is concerned to address are works of the law. He's talking to Jews here. So am, I, am, I, am I confusing you? Uh, Martha says, what do you think of the definition of justified as just as I'd never sinned? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's fair. Um, If your sins are taken off of your account, then I would say that leaves you as just as if you've never sinned. There's, I mean, we probably wouldn't want to push that too far, uh, but yeah, I think that's a that's a clever way to kind of you know a, a simple way to remember it, kind of a, a child song kind of kind of version, right? Uh, Alfred says, "You only Jews and works of the law." That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, Gentiles are not going to be declared righteous by their works either. I'm just saying that is not a question that's even raised in the New Testament. Everybody assumed Gentiles were guilty before God. So if you bring that forward to today, if you come across someone who thinks they are righteous enough to stand before God and be declared righteous, then of course you do have to convince them they are sinners. All it takes is one sin and you're no longer righteous enough to stand before a holy judge at judgment. Um, but they're not guilty of breaking the law of Moses. They're guilty of breaking the law of God, which is not the same thing as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, Ken says, Gentiles didn't have the law, so they wouldn't be doing them, therefore wouldn't be able to be justified by them. Right. They're still guilty of sin, but Gentiles are not guilty of breaking the law of Moses. And the works of the law of Moses is what Paul had to address again and again with the Jews. And they remember they were trying to bring Roman Christians and other Christians under the works of the law. Kismet Queen, unbelievers will be judged by their works, which includes sin, while unbelievers, while guilty of sin, just as unbelievers are justified and imputed righteousness by the atonement of Christ's blood. Their works, yeah, they'll be judged by their works, but they're not going to be judged by the law of Moses. Uh, so it's, unbelie it's believers versus unbelievers in Christ. Uh, I think it's believers in Christ. I'm not, 
Sorry, because the queen, I don't understand what that uh, that last statement is about. Uh, free will, is that considered work? Yeah, see, that's a great question because it makes the point uh, that I'm trying to make. Uh, you're going to hear people, theologians, argue whether faith is a work. If we're saved by faith, faith can't be a work because then it would be our own work that justifies us. That whole question, I think, is irrelevant and, and nonsensical based on the context. Faith is something you do. You believe. It's an action, active verb. <laughs> God's faith doesn't save you. Somebody else's faith doesn't save you. You have to believe the gospel. You have to do that. And it is your belief in the gospel that brings justification. And someone again is going to say, oh, that's a work. Well, yes, but the work, Jesus said it, right? The work of God is to believe the gospel. Paul is not saying there's nothing you have to do to be righteous, to be justified. You absolutely have to do something to be justified. You have to believe the gospel, and that's something you do. Justification by works is concerned with the Jew under the law. Again, we, we just, we become... Yeah, as Edgar says, we become systematic theologians all the time. You tell a sinner repeatedly again and again and again, there's nothing you can do, nothing you can do, nothing you can do to be saved. And then you tell him, now you got to believe. Well, if he's thinking at all, he's going, wait a minute. You said emphatically, there is nothing I can do to be saved. Salvation's a gift. You told me that repeatedly. Nothing I can do to be saved. Salvation's a gift. And now you tell me I have to believe. Isn't that something I have to do? You know, no, 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 faith is not something you do. Well, what is it then? See, we, these are all the kinds of things we get caught up in when we read the Bible theologically and out of context. No flesh, that's a Jew, flesh is circumcision of the flesh. No Jew is going to be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Because no Jew or circumcised in the flesh has kept the law. If he had kept the law, he'd be justified by the law. And when you're talking to a non-Jew unbeliever, he does have to do something. He must repent of his sin and believe the gospel. People, uh, David says, people make a whole systematic theology category, which the Bible doesn't exactly. And Alfred, <laughs> is there anything in this text, Alfred, that says that faith is a gift? And, I, and I'm not picking on you. I'm trying to, you're, you're making the point. We, we are, we, we're so, uh, we're just so taught from a systematic perspective 
Paul's concern here is not whether faith is a gift. Do you at least agree there? You see, there's there's no hint here that faith is a gift. Let me ask you something, Alfred. Do you believe that a person must believe the gospel to be saved? I'm sure you do. If we're going to ask the question, is faith a gift? We have to go to someplace other than Romans, at least Romans 3, because that is not Paul's concern here. And I want us to stick with what Paul's concerned with here. It's a reasonable question. And there is another text, another passage that deals with that, but he's making a different point. So I'm, I'm obviously trying to teach you something as we go here. Stick to the text. You do afterwards work of the Holy Spirit is a mystery. You do afterwards what? After what? So I suppose you're, you're responding to my question, do you have to believe to be saved? You do afterwards. You have to believe after what? I realize our time is up. This may be tedious for some of you. I'm going to see if we have a, if the lag here is, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to drag this on. Uh, yeah, yes, Kieran, I do. Systematic theologians are originally against biblical theology. There are there are some that aren't. Um, Greg Beale, Dr. Beale is uh, he's almost there, but his systematic theology comes swooping in when it comes to certain aspects of covenant theology. Um, but yeah. Systematic theology fights against biblical theology. Uh, Alfred, what I assume you're asking, and I, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume this is where you're going with this. Again, systematic theology tells us the Holy Spirit does a work, gives you the gift of faith, and then you believe. And we often understand that as a chronological statement, but we got to be very careful with that. Do you think there are people in whom the Holy Spirit has worked who are given the new birth, regenerated, and they don't have faith? That is not how the Bible speaks of any of this. There's a cause-effect relationship, but what we see in the Scripture... Uh, all right, I realize that. Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. He did not say the means by which you enter the kingdom is by being born again. Everywhere in the New Testament, when any unbeliever is confronted with the gospel, Paul, Peter, uh, Philip, they don't say, be born again. They say, believe, right? Repent and believe. And they don't get into a whole theology of 
how all this has to happen. The reason Jesus does with Nicodemus is Nicodemus shows up and says, we know things about you. We have figured out you are from God. And Jesus confronts him and says, you don't know anything. You guys are missing the whole point of how to please God and enter the kingdom. Ezekiel talked about having a new heart and a new spirit. If that doesn't happen, you can't enter. But he's wrestling, he, he's, he's arguing and debating with a, a Jewish theologian who's desperate, desperately long, wrong in his understanding of how to please God. Everywhere else in the New Testament, confrontation with an unbeliever is not about regeneration and God's sovereignty and a gift of faith and all that is, I'm begging you, Paul says to the Corinthians, I beg you, be reconciled to God. So we have to be very careful that we don't let our systematic theology trump what the Bible clearly says. If anyone is going to be declared righteous before a holy, righteous God, he must repent of his sin, put his trust in Jesus, believe the death and resurrection of Christ. That's how, because Jesus was faithful went to the cross to become our propitiation. All right, got to run. Uh, tomorrow is Friday, so come back, gentlemen. We'll have Fridays with the fellas. And, uh, and then uh, next week we'll pick up in verse 27. All right, I'm going to say, address one more thing. Kismet Queen says, when I'm reading the text and clearly see what it says, I've heard the law in the passage conflated with the entire word of God, not just the law of Moses too much. Excellent. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear it. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm trying to uh, get you to see. All right. Have a great day. We will talk to you later. God bless.